Well, good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. Special welcome if you're visiting us this morning. It's nice to have some old friends with us, Carolyn and Willie. It's great to see you both and a new friend in Duncan. You're all very welcome. Thank you. Um, I rejoiced when I heard them say, let us go to the house of the Lord. And now our feet are standing in your courts, O Jerusalem. Our opening hymn of praise this morning. Take this moment, sign and space. And those who are able and would like to are invited to stand as we sing. So we come to God with our prayers of praise and thanksgiving, after which we will join together in the words of the Lord's Prayer. And as usual, please do that in whatever form and language feels the most natural and normal for you. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we meet in the name of Jesus to offer our praise and thanksgiving to seek forgiveness for our failings and regrets and to find new hope and new encouragement for our daily lives. We thank you for each other, for our diversity of life experience, education, understanding and opinion, for the freedom we have to meet in this place to share together and for the wonder of all that brings us joy. We thank you for this church, 
with its long history of welcome and hospitality, its openness to new insights into what it means to follow Jesus, and its willingness to take risks in serving you. We thank you for this city with so many parks, museums and galleries, so many places of education and learning, for its industrial heritage and its contemporary commerce. We thank you for our world, a beautiful blue and green planet whirling in space, inhabited by countless species of animal and plant life. Our home, provided by your endless generosity. Merciful God, it is good to offer you our thanks and our praise, but we are all too aware of our own frailty and finitude. So we gather our prayers with those of others around the world, asking you to forgive us and to transform us into the citizens of your kingdom as we pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen.
I wonder who is familiar with Kim's Game? Who's ever played Kim's Game? If you were a scout or a guide or in the Girls' Brigade or maybe even in the Boys' Brigade, um, you probably would have done. So somebody who's played it, can you share with everybody else how it works to save me explaining? There's a tray with lots of things on it. You cover it up with detail. Somebody takes all the things away. You have to say what's missing. Yep. That's right. So a tray, which clearly that I haven't got, with some objects on it, which gets covered up. With a tea towel or something. Well, it was always a tea towel when I did it, I must admit, Holly. Covered up with a tea towel. So you take off the tea towel, you give people so long to look at the objects, you cover it up, you take one away, and they have to tell you what it is. Now, I couldn't get a big enough tray to put in the middle of the room for everybody to see, so we're actually going to use um, some photographs. It's a photographic version of Kim's game, which was done on my kitchen table. Um, if you need to come a bit further forward to see the screen better, please feel free. And it possibly will be helpful <coughs> if we just take the lights down a bit. So just ignore that. That's just an example. That's not what we're going to do. But I'm going to give you one minute, which I'm going to time on my watch, to look at my selection of 20 objects. So if you need to move to see them, feel free. Okay, so I'm now going to show you this collection of objects again and see if you can spot which one I have taken away. Somebody says none of them, which is... Is it maybe the calculator? Uh, no, um, and Katrina said it's a fork, and that is correct. Yep, there was a fork at the bottom left-hand side. Okay, I'm going to cover them up again. And I've put the fork back, but what have I taken away this time? <laughs> well done. <laughs> straight in there. Holly was straight in there. She saw the train ticket. Did, any, did anybody else spot that the train ticket was missing? A few people? Okay. Right. Now, this time... I have been a bit mean and I have taken away two things. Toothbrushes, correct. Thank you, Carl. I've done a little bit of moving around as well, just to be a bit mean. Note the train ticket is back there at the bottom. I've just put it in the. Sorry? Yeah, well done, Anita. It was the Pritt stick. So the toothbrush and the Pritt stick. A bit harder when I've swapped them around and a bit harder when I've taken two. Okay, last one. I have moved them around a bit more. But there's only one missing. See if you can work out what it is. Oh, straight in. <laughs> yeah, that was the apple that was missing. Thank you. Just put the lights back up. It isn't easy to remember 20 objects. I think you did really, really well with that. Um, especially as the time it's projected, it wasn't the greatest image. It looked fine on my laptop, but hey, whatever. Um, it's not always easy to notice what's missing. You have to look really hard sometimes, don't you, to spot what's gone, especially if it's something 
small. I could have taken one of the very small items out and it might have been a bit harder to find it. There's two things that we learn from the Bible about small things. One which is really good, it's a promise to hold on to. And that is that God sees everything. It says in the Bible that even if a little sparrow, a little bird, falls from the sky and no person notices it, God notices it. It's almost the counter to that thing about the sound of a tree falling in the forest, isn't it? It says, if a tree falls in the forest, does it still make a noise? Well, I think God hears it, even if no human person hears it. And then the other thing we're reminded about is that in all the muddle, if we feel a bit lost and confused, God's still there with us. Nothing is hidden from God. We hear that sometimes as a, about things we do wrong. You can't hide the wrong things from God, which is true. But actually, it reminds us that even if we feel lost and alone and confused and bewildered and think that nobody notices or nobody cares, God still sees and God loves us and God cares very much. So we're going to sing a really old children's song now. We have sung it before. I think it was six years ago (laughs) we last sang it. It doesn't feel that long to me, but there we go. We love the Jesus stories of what was lost and found and how he teaches us to see God's kingdom all around.
we listen for the word of God, firstly from Psalm 51, and then from chapter 15 of Luke's Gospel. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and travelled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his eldest son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has got him back safe and sound. 
Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. I were to ask you what you thought were the key themes in the parable of the father and his two sons, I'm fairly confident that the answers that you would offer would include such words as grace, mercy, forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, and love. And of course, those are all valid answers. This is a story in which the younger son goes off the rails, ends up in a terrible predicament, returns home fearing rejection, and instead is welcomed with open arms and a banquet. The message is clear. There is no one who is too bad or too wayward for God. Anyone who comes seeking pardon will be overwhelmed by grace, mercy and love. And that is all true. And it's a really important message that we do well to remind ourselves of. But when the house groups were looking at this parable, it created more than a little bit of discomfort. As we read it, it seemed that the younger son pretty much gets off scot-free that he doesn't seem to have any long-term consequences for his actions. In fact, one person observed that it almost seems as if bad behaviour earns a reward, and that cannot be right, can it? Our conversations in the house groups ranged far and wide and explored such ideas as the challenges of classroom discipline and the incentivization of good behaviour which sometimes feels as if people are rewarded for what they don't do 
rather than what they do do. Maybe it was our own inner older brothers speaking, but there was a sense in most of the groups at least that there should be some kind of consequences for this young man. He had squandered so much money. A sense that in a world of sin and finitude, there have to be checks and balances and there have to be implications for the choices that we make. It was almost as though we were saying, grace, mercy, love, redemption. Yep, they're all good, but. And one of the questions that was raised in one of the groups was this. Do actions have consequences? And from that arise further questions. How should we as communities of faith balance our conviction that everyone can be redeemed with the reality that we are all sinners and as such have the potential to cause harm? Can past actions be written off or must there be long-term even lifelong consequences. And this is where it starts to get complicated because those neat and tidy either-or answers just don't stand up when we start thinking about real people. In fact, what happens is we are left with endless shades of grey. As I worked with the text for this week and the ideas, I found it really challenging. Not least because there is such a huge difference about what we might call a Sunday school reading of the story and the reality of our lived experience. And that lived experience is different for all of us. And it will affect the way we hear the story, the questions it raises and the way we respond. Sometimes what seems to be clear and fair and just in theory can turn out to be messy and seemingly unfair or unjust in practice. There actually are very few, if any, straightforward answers. So as we start to think about actions and consequences, we begin with the young man in the story. And what he has done is certainly selfish and certainly foolish. And we may even question his morality. But as far as we can ascertain, he hasn't broken any laws. There is nothing to suggest he has stolen or been violent or anything else that would incur a a criminal penalty. He certainly behaved badly. And the result of that bad behaviour is he's forfeited any rights he might have in his father's household. And the way the story is told by Jesus, it's clear he knows this and understands it, which at least partly is why he decides to go home in the hope of securing employment. I say partly because it could still be argued that this seeking of employment was still looking after number one, still thinking about what was best for him. After all, he left behind a job looking after pigs and we don't know what the implications of that were for his employer. 
In the same way as we're left with a what next, what happened next for the older brother in the story, it's true also with the younger brother. What happened the day after the banquet? How did he adjust to being back home? Were he and his brother ever reconciled? And what were the long-term consequences of having squandered his inheritance? Maybe he had learned from his mistakes, secured paid employment and saved hard to provide for any family he may have had. On the other hand, maybe he hadn't really changed and he continued to live beyond his means, lurching from one model to another. Of course, it's a fictional story, so we can decide for ourselves how things might go. But even as we do that, subconsciously we're making value judgments about him and about the other characters in the story, judgments probably shaped by our own experience. A prodigal son, wayward, foolish and selfish, but of no real danger other than perhaps to himself. Grace, mercy, love, redemption. Well, yes, he's probably a lovable rogue. But what if he wasn't so lovable? What if his actions had caused harm to others? Would it make a difference if we were told that he had been violent or abusive, even to one other person? Would we feel differently if he'd stolen money or property from people of limited means? If he'd broken the laws of the land or in the context of the story of the temple, would we feel differently about him? What consequences might we expect then? In the Old Testament, we have stories of a king called David. And it's a messy, complex and troubling set of stories. Although he's described as being a man after God's own heart, he's a womanizer, an adulterer. By proxy, he is a murderer. He is a liar and probably a whole lot more. Psalm 51, from which we heard an extract this morning, is generally accepted as having been written by David after news of his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of her husband came to light. The child Bathsheba conceived as a result of that affair lived only a few days after birth. And the servants who would have to tell David this were terrified because they thought he might react violently. It's a really ugly story, and the consequences rippled on through time. There's no doubt that God forgave David, that grace and mercy were his experience, but it didn't mean there were no consequences for his actions. Now, I want to say very clearly that I don't think that God killed the baby in order to punish David. I don't know why the baby died, but all the hurt and heartache that arose in that relationship and through the loss of that child and the murder of an innocent man began with David's misdemeanour. There were consequences to his action. 
and humanly speaking, the blot on his record couldn't simply be expunged any more than he could put right to the hurt. And so there are two things to hold together in tension. The redemptive grace and mercy of God, which indeed does remove the sin for all eternity. And the unavoidable human temporal consequences, which have to be lived with. And again, that all sounds fine when we talk in the abstract, but it isn't so easy when it relates to our experience or people we know. I found forming this week's sermon especially challenging because of my own experiences and those of people I know and love, some still ongoing, that illustrate the messy reality of holding together forgiveness and consequence, mercy with the need to put things right. To illustrate some of my struggle, I'm going to share with you a true story from a church I was part of a number of years ago. And as I tell you the story, you'll understand why I'm not going to name the church or the place or anybody within it. But it's an example of the complexity of what it means to live this stuff in real life. A minister friend of mine received a letter from HMRC to say that their income tax had not been paid and so they faced a hefty fine. They were very confused because, like most ministers, tax was done by PAYE, so they queried it with the church treasurer. What then unfolded was theft and fraud over an extended period. Bills had not been paid and the church finances were in disarray, so much so that they had to call in help from the Baptist Union. The church was given the money to settle its debts, which were pretty huge, running into tens of thousands, but on condition that the matter was taken to court. Forgiveness, grace and mercy are fine, But charity law places strict responsibilities on trustees that cannot simply be ignored. Inevitably, questions arose about due diligence and potential negligence. Great care was taken when the case came to court, because of course that is a matter of public record. The reality is if you went home and googled what I've said, you could probably find out who it was and where it was. The treasurer resigned and was legally permanently disqualified from holding office as a trustee or a role in in a company. The treasurer no longer attends the church, although their spouse and family do go to the church where they are loved and valued. But they find it really hard to accept that the church didn't just forgive and forget and, and carry on as if nothing had happened. It is a desperately sad story. The treasurer was somebody I knew well. I found them to be a kind and generous person, devout in their faith and very loyal to the church. They were also a good deacon. So it hurt me deeply to learn what had happened. 
But that's only a fraction of the hurt that he, his family and the church experienced and to a degree still experience. It taught me important and profound lessons about the imperfection, frailty and finitude of human endeavour. Didn't teach me not to alliterate though. It confirmed for me the challenge of believing that churches are communities of grace and rec- of grace and mercy, whilst recognising that sometimes actions have unpalatable consequences. It reminded me that redemption is always a work in process, and that our call to work to get, walk together and watch over one another includes putting into place such systems that can make our churches as safe as possible for everybody. It also showed me how imperfect those systems are, how partial our judgments. Just as we can be fooled by outward appearances and think somebody is much better than they are, the reality is that from time to time, people who are truly penitent and genuinely transformed by grace will fall foul of such systems. The more I've reflected on the story and the psalm, the more I have recalled experiences of churches and people that I know, the more complex it's become and the less confident I've become in drawing any conclusions on this story for anybody other than myself but it doesn't seem right just to leave it hanging. So let's go back, try to be that younger son and hear him tell a bit more of his story. For as long as I can remember, I was always his little brother, the one who was expected to follow his example of obedience. Why can't you be more like him, my parents would say, as once again I was told off for what seemed to me an insignificant misdemeanour. I was always second. When I was born, he could already walk and talk. When I was toddling, he'd learned to read and to count. And when I was old enough to start work, he already had all the skills finely honed. There was nothing I could do that he hadn't and so needed to prove myself. So I pestered our father relentlessly until he gave me my share of the inheritance, selling off some of his livestock to do so. And I have to confess I went a bit wild. Now I could do what I wanted to do and I did. I wasn't hurting anyone. Well... Not except perhaps my parents or the people I got angry with when I was drunk or the innkeepers that didn't get paid when the money ran out. Going back home was the hardest decision ever. I knew I'd messed up big time. My big brother would never have done such a thing. So the welcome, the party the clothes. It blew my mind to be called son and welcomed home, forgiven and loved. It was amazing. I wish I hadn't done what I did. I wish I'd behaved differently 
but I can't change it. Family life, it's getting there. There is still the odd tension between us brothers and an occasional lapse into the old ways, but it's all right. Work, yep, it's going fine. I've learned what my skills are and what they aren't, and I'm learning how best to employ them. Consequences, oh yes. I now realise that my choices back then have ongoing consequences. That forgiveness and grace and love cannot undo what I did. But to know that I'm forgiven and loved, to believe that grace is transforming me, even on my bad days, even when the consequences are hard to bear, I hold on to those truths and trust that in the end, all will be redeemed within the love of God. And so as we respond to those readings and those thoughts, we sing together, Search me, O God, and know my heart today.
Our prayers of intercession this morning are taken from a wee worship book um, which was created by the Wild Goose Resource Group. At several points in our prayers this morning, you're invited to respond. When I say the words, Lord, hear us, you're invited to respond, Lord, graciously hear us. There will also be some periods of silence, so let us pray. Holy God, though this world depends on your grace, it is governed and tended by mortals. <coughs> so we pray for those who walk the corridors of power in the parliaments of this and other lands whose judgments we value or fear. May they always consider those they represent make decisions with courage and integrity and resist any temptation to abuse the trust placed in them. Lord, hear us. Lord, graciously hear us. We pray for those who hold key positions in the worlds of finance, business and industry, whose decisions may profit some or impoverish many. May they always value people higher than profit. May they never impose burdens on the poor which they would not carry themselves. And may they never divorce money from morality or ownership from stewardship. Lord, hear us. Lord, graciously hear us. We pray for those in the caring professions who look after and listen to kind, cruel and cantankerous folk. And for those making decisions regarding the nation's health and welfare. May they always sense the sanctity of life and every person's uniqueness. 
May they help and heal by their interest as well as their skill. And may they be saved from tiredness and an excess of demands. Lord, hear us. Lord, graciously hear us. And let us remember those for whom we are responsible and to whom we are accountable in what we do today. May we show to them the thoughtfulness, tolerance and kindness of Jesus. Lord, hear us. Lord, graciously hear us. Lord, hear our prayers. And if today we might be the means by which you answer the prayers of others, then may you find us neither deaf nor defiant, but keen to fulfil your purpose. For Jesus' sake. Amen.
generous, gracious God from whom all good gifts are given. We thank you that you have enabled us to give back. For many of us that means to give money. For all of us it means to give love and gentleness and hope and forgiveness and the good news of Jesus. So take our offerings and transform them into something beautiful for his sake. Amen. May the triune God who embraces each one of us with grace, mercy and love encourage us as we leave this place and guide our footsteps in the days ahead and always. Oh.